The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Charlene. Always great to have you back from your medical school studies. Great to, great to be with you and hear the scriptures out of your lips. And uh, friends, we're in our, uh, our Advent series right now, uh, which makes sense because it's Advent season. This is the third message. And the title today is uh, that the king becomes the servant. So I was, um, I was uh, looking at something that was written by a Christian whose uh, work is in the realm of politics primarily, and uh, he made a statement uh, in answer to the question, has politics become your religion? And he said that there are four indicators that politics has become your religion. The first is you are led more by politicians and commentators than you are by Bible teachers. Secondly, your values are identical to your party's platform at all times. Third, you against your opponent equals good against evil in your mind. And then fourth, an election victory feels like a revival, and a loss in an election feels like the end of the world. So why are our hearts so invested in government and politics? I, th- I think there's, there's a good and legitimate reason, and then there's a, a concerning reason. The good and legitimate reason is that God has put eternity in our hearts Uh, And with that, a longing for the world that we came from, the Garden of Eden, before things went terrible, and also the world we're headed toward, 
the new heaven and the new earth where God will restore everything, make all things new, and, and put right everything that is wrong. We long for that world, and, and in the meantime, the degree that this present world is out of sorts with God's kingdom and God's priorities, truth, beauty, justice, and all the rest, our longing for change is legitimate, and our longing for leaders who will help with that change is legitimate, Uh, which, of course, gives legitimacy to uh, even brothers and sisters in our midst whose role it is to serve in public office and government and such. But then there's also the flip side of that 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 relates to um, the statement toward the end of today's Scripture where where the Lord said He will not share, um, you know, His glory with idols. And things like uh, government and political power can become that if, if we have the kind of unbelief in our hearts that suggests that God is not going to get the job done. Uh, much like ancient Israel, when Israel was, was a, a unique nation in that they did not have a king like the other surrounding nations did because the Lord was their king. And they said to the Lord, well, we want, we want a king too. And the Lord said, well, I am your king. But they, and they said, yeah, yeah, but we want a king king like, like the other nations around us have king kings. And so he said, you know what? I'll, I'll give you what you asked for. We'll see how it works for you. And King Saul was given, and it did not work out well at all. When government is treated as a Lord and Savior instead of a servant of the Lord and Savior, uh, we're on a fool's errand. And one of the commentaries put it this way, the mess we have made is so far advanced, so systemic, so overwhelming, it's beyond our powers of correction. Should we work for a better society? Yes. But at the same time, let's have the humility to face the facts. In the whole sorry length of human history, we have failed to assemble even one human society as we ourselves would really like it to be. And so this passage in front of us from Isaiah chapter 42, it's preceded by chapter 41 where a reigning king named Cyrus is described. Cyrus, it says, shall trample on rulers as on mortar and as the potter treads on the clay. But then here in chapter 42, the Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm a different kind of king. I'm a king like you've never seen. I'm a king like you've never had. And then he puts forth the one that he calls my servant, which of course would be fulfilled later in history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. My servant will not be heavy-handed and harsh like Cyrus, but instead will come across as unassertive, meek, tender, and kind. And to our, our surprise, perhaps, it is this kind of king and only this kind of king, this kind of ruler and only this kind of ruler, who will ultimately succeed in achieving the kind of world that we all long for. So I want to talk today from this text about three features of King Jesus. He's durable, he's dominant, and he's different. 
All of these are features of King Jesus. First, he's, he's durable. Verses, verses 1, 4, and 6, just a little bit of a mashup of, of excerpts from all three of those verses, where the Lord says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he establishes justice in the earth. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. So if we go to the second psalm, which is a parallel uh, kind of scripture to, to Isaiah 42, it talks in the second psalm about how nations rage and they plot and they scheme. And it says that kings and rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, and the Lord in heaven laughs. So we've got to ask, what's so funny about that? What's so humorous? What's so silly about nations raging against the Lord to the degree that it makes him laugh? Well, it's because the Lord is a force that cannot be stopped. No weapon fashioned against him will stand. Back to our text today, verse 5, it says that the Lord is the one who created the heavens and then stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it. And then there's another supporting psalm about the Lord as creator, where, where it says in Psalm 8, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So let's talk about the heavens or the cosmos or the universe just for a second. Current estimates are, and the the number is growing all the time exponentially, but current estimates are that there are 2 billion trillion stars. Now, our sun, the sun around which our particular solar solar system, including our planet Earth, revolves, that's one star. And, you know, scientists and physicists would say it's actually kind of a mediocre star relative to the other stars. In a mediocre galaxy relative to all the other galaxies, it's one of roughly 200 billion trillion stars. That's the the number two with 23 zeros after it, just to give us perspective on how vast and significant the universe is. But back to the eighth psalm where it says the heavens declare the glory of God, it also says that that the universe is the work of his fingers. His fine motor skills are what put the entire universe and all, all the stars and the galaxies together. And, and, and it's, it's his fingertips that, is able, that are able even to squash an entire galaxy in the same way that our fingertips are able to squash a gnat. That's how seismic the Lord's power and durability are, lest his meekness lead us to conclude otherwise. Even Jesus dying on the cross was an exertion of power. It looks, the optics of it is that the cross of Christ is a, is a, is a picture of weakness and of loss, but it, it's, it's actually a demonstration of, of Jesus' own power of self-restraint. That he, he goes through with the cross in order to rescue those that he loves from ourselves. So there's this immeasurable power that, that, that the Lord uses to squash his enemies, which I'll talk about in a minute, but, but, but for here in terms of his durability, <clears throat> to preserve his people. So in certain theological circles, including our own, there's this acronym called the TULIP. 
Uh, and it, it, it's been called the five points of Calvinism, even though Calvin would never want any ism named after him. And yet the five points of Calvinism, which, which are affirmed by all sorts of people, including John Calvin himself, Martin, the, the great Martin Luther, and all the great Protestant reformers, uh, you know, on to the current day, the likes of Tim Keller, Paige Brenton, Benton Brown, um, um, Johnny Erickson Tata, um, you know, and, and a bunch of other you know, reputable folks, Nancy Guthrie, and so on, Bible teachers. Five points, right? Total depravity, like the human heart is corrupt, it's, it's stained, it's tarnished, it's contaminated, it needs a rescue and a cleansing from outside itself. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible faith. In other words, you can't, if God wants you, you can't resist Him. He's got even power over your own heart. And then finally, perseverance of the saints. Now, now another theologian named R.C. Sproul said, actually, perseverance of the saints sounds like uh, it puts the onus on the human being to persevere. And, and, and so he proposes a different word, preservation of the saints, which I, I agree is more biblically accurate, which means this. You cannot lose your salvation once you have it. That's one of the things that it means. You know, John chapter 10, Jesus is explicit that no one has the ability to snatch my people out of my hand. Nobody. You know, Romans chapter 8, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you, will ever have the power to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Once you're in, you're in. Once you're in, you can never be kicked out of the family of God. God does not disown his kids. God does not reject his kids. He disciplines his kids, but he does not reject them. But the other thing that the preservation of the saints communicates is not only will God ensure that we can't lose our salvation, we also can't lose our existence. For the history of God's people, God's people everywhere have been under persecution. There have been all sorts of governments and, and, and power structures that have sought to eliminate and exterminate the people of God all the way back to Pharaoh's Egypt where he, you know, he, wanted, to, um, you know, he wanted to squash the Jews when the Jews wanted, wanted freedom. Uh, and, then, and then you've got you know, people like uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and, and Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria. You know, violent forces against the people of God. Israel survived it those dictators didn't. And then the New Testament, you've got, you've got, you know, the Herods, and, you know, who tried, you know, Herod, Herod who tried to, um, you know, exterminate all Jewish boys under a certain age in order to rid of the rumors that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus. Then you've got Nero, who uh, is, is thought to have executed the likes of the Apostle Paul. Like, all of them are gone. Their empires are gone. They're gone. I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit more in a minute. But the people of God are still here. The Jewish community in Israel still exists. The church of Jesus Christ still exists, and, and despite American narratives, gr- globally, the church of Jesus Christ is expanding exponentially all over the world. Don't ever just Americanize your, your perspective of Christianity. It's a, global, it's a global thing. God's active all around the world. And the studies would also show that, that, that churches in America that believe the Bible from cover to cover as God's Word are also actually growing. The ones that are shrinking are the ones that are somehow compromised on, on belief in the Bible as the Word of God. And so you've got this Energizer Bunny dynamic. For those of you who are old enough to remember the Energizer Bunny, takes a licking, keeps on ticking. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
You know, it's like this. You know, we're in Nashville, so we can talk a little bit about bow hunting. I imagine some of you have hunted with a bow, shoot a bow and arrow. Maybe you're into archery. So I heard a, a really um, poignant, um, relevant illustration on that. You know, the, 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 arrow, the arrow is a lot like the people of God. The more you hold it back, and, and, and in some ways the longer you hold it back, the greater the momentum and the force will be when that arrow is released to its target. There's a power that, that, that's difficult to discern necessarily with the naked eye, but it's there. Durable. Also dominant. One of the things that Isaiah shows us is how God intends to leverage his power. And you know, one of the things that you learn from the Scripture when you read the Old Testament and the New is never trust a leader who uses his or her power to enrich his or her self or, or to, to make his or herself the, the hero of the story in which they're leading. But always trust a leader who uses their power to improve the world for others. Trust that leader. And that's the servant. The servant is a trustworthy leader because he uses his power to improve the world for the sake of the world and for the sake of others and at his own expense. You know, verses 1, 3, and 4, there's, there's a word that keeps repeating here. My servant will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice to the earth. That's, that's a threefold repetition of the word justice. Now, if you read through the, the, the fullness of the Bible, you'll see eventually that there are two forms of justice that the Bible primarily presents to us. There's the retributive form of justice and then the restorative form. One's negative and one's positive. One is life-taking and the other is life-giving, and both are for the cosmic good given to us by God. First, retributive justice. That's the part where, where the Bible says everywhere that God will punish evildoers. And, and, you know, the skeptic among us might say, oh, no, here we go. All that judgment stuff, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I'll just say it again. Don't hold it against Jonathan Edwards uh, just because you've read the title of that sermon without reading the actual sermon itself and understanding what his own heart and posture was as he wept through the sermon trying to persuade people to, to flee the judgment of God by running into the grace and mercy of God. Like, don't hold that, don't, don't ever superficially, you know, form a narrative based on a headline. It's lazy and unintelligent to do so. And it's also lazy and unintelligent if you're a Bible reader to reject the notion that God punishes evil. And I would, su- I would suggest that even if you don't believe in God, you believe in judgment. You do. And you say, well, I dare you to try to prove that. Well, I'll just ask the question, what is your internal reaction when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Let's just start there. What's your internal reaction when you are in a parking lot and you find a dent in your car or a scratch on your car and there's a note and you're like, oh good, somebody's going to take responsibility. And then you read the note and it says, hey, I'm not telling you who I am, but I'm trying to make it look to the people around me like I'm actually taking responsibility for what I'm doing. Have a nice day. No phone number, no names or anything. 
You still believe in a God who is only love and only forgiving all the time in every situation? Or maybe somebody steals from you. They steal money. They steal property from you. They steal your reputation. Theft. You still only want a God who is loving and forgiving all the time with everybody? No questions asked? What if you're slandered? What if your own child is bullied? You still only want a God who is loving and forgiving all the time to everyone? No questions asked? You don't. You don't. You get angry. And anger, a- anger is a destructive force. It's either a destructive force for evil because you're, you're, you're attacking what's good with your anger or it's a destructive force for good because you're attacking what's evil with your anger. And that's what the Lord does. He destroys evil so that good may flourish. He stops evil so that good may advance and gain momentum. We all want a God who loves and forgives everyone all the time, no questions asked, until we don't want that God. Let's just be honest. We want justice. We want repair. We want retribution sometimes, perhaps, but that's really God's territory and jurisdiction. Be careful with your own heart there if you find yourself desiring retribution. It's one thing to desire repair. It's another thing to desire a pound of flesh. In that respect, we're called to love our enemies, even as Jesus did. You know, again, all these, all these mighty dictators of the Old Testament and the New Testament, world-famous, undefeatable, insurmountable powers to the smaller nations like Israel, they're all gone, and Israel still exists. The church still exists. You know, William Plummer did a study, and uh, he looked at the uh, identifiable 30 high-ranking ancient Roman officials who distinguished themselves especially in their campaigns and in their activity by their zeal to persecute and eliminate the people of Jesus from the world. He looked at, he could find 30 of them, and he, and he, he asked himself the question and did the research to answer the question, what happened to all of these, these high-ranking Roman officials who distinguished themselves by their zeal to eliminate Christians? Well, one lost his mind. One was slain by his own son. Two of them went blind. One of them drowned. One of them was strangled. One of them died in brutal captivity. Seven of them died from odious diseases and circumstances. Three died by suicide. Five were assassinated by their own servants. Eight were killed in battle or died in prison, and the rest died from crippling diseases. This is where I want to give all of us some friendly advice. Forget about being worried about whether or not you're on the wrong side of history and whether or not you're in line with whatever is politically correct and trendy in terms of the current, you know, modern American social vision. Forget about whether or not you're on the right or wrong side of history. What you really want to be concerned with is whether you're on the wrong side of God and whether you're on the wrong side of of creation or the way that He's designed people and places and things to function, the wrong side of redemption where He welcomes sinners and eats with them and opposes the proud religious folks. Forget about caring whether or not you're on the wrong side of history. Ask yourself the question, am I on the wrong side of God? Because I assure you, you don't want to be. 
Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The Lion of God has teeth. There's also restorative justice. The Hebrew word there is mishpat. We're going to sing about the nature of mishpat in our our closing hymn today, which I would highly encourage you to stay for after communion, to sing it into your own hearts and to sing it into the hearts of the people around you, where it says that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As, as Abraham Kuyper famously said once, which, which constitutes the philosophy beneath our, especially our National Institute for Faith and Work, uh, as well as uh, our vision as a church to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things, everyone and everything comprehensively, to life. Because God, as, according to Kuyper and according to Scripture, looks at every square inch of His universe and He declares, that's mine. It's mine. No one but me has jurisdiction. You know, this word mishpat is synonymous with the other Hebrew word shalom, which Tim Keller rightly describes as the kind of society in which retributive justice isn't needed anymore because everything is now in right relationship to everything else. It is the absolute well-being of every person, every place, and everything. That's where history is headed. That's where, that's where the servant of the Lord is taking things. Mishpat, comprehensive flourishing. No more division. No more strife. No more disagreement even. No more weeds in the lawn. None of it. Absolute well-being. You know, verse 3 affirms that everyone and everything that is bruised and fading, it says, will be neither broken nor quenched because a bruised reed my servant will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Verse 7 talks about how blind eyes will be open, prisoners will be set free, darkness turned to light. That's the trajectory of history. That's where everything is going right now. You know, Tolkien says this. This is, this is one of his famous and, and remarkably wonderful uh, biographical statements uh, the, about the king, but that also points to and is derived from who King Jesus is, where Tolkien says, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. And, and, and it gets even better. The king with his healing hands, who, who, who makes himself also a great physician, desires not to do the work of healing alone. He wants to deputize all of his people to serve as his physician's assistants and his nurses to come and make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. We have a role to play. Here's an example of how the healed become healers, how we pass on to others what has been gifted and graced to us from the healing hands of this great king. You know, as part of a, a gathering, uh, not this past week, but the week before, about 100 uh, Christian leaders uh, from around the country in Dallas, Texas. And it was, it was hosted by an organization called, organization called Barna. They do a lot of research uh, and statistical analysis uh, about particularly 
how things are going in, in the state of, of the American church in particular, and Christianity in particular around the world, and that, you know, they're kind of considered the standard for, um, for surveys and, and, you know, accurate current data. And they were unveiling some of the accurate current data at this conference. And one of the seminars I was at, um, you know, they, they pulled a philanthropy study that, that was done a few years ago. It wasn't, necess- it wasn't a Barna study, but, but it, was, it was, you know, declared as a very reputable, um, you know, study and survey, which revealed that 70% of all American philanthropy comes from the wealth and generosity of the people of Jesus. 70%. And that study also revealed that the American church, that American Jesus people give more in terms of generosity and philanthropy to solve global poverty than the U.S. government does. Those are pretty significant statistics about what the healing hands of the king are doing through his physician's assistants and nurses for the sake of the world's flourishing. There are many more other examples. I've, I've gone through the list before about how, for example, the Ivy League universities, the hospital, abolition of the slave trade, civil rights movement, orphan care, and other mishpat movements, other restorative justice movements were founded by Christian lay people and Christian ministers and and continue to, to be advanced by a majority of the people of Jesus running those organizations. The, the, the same could be true of, of the, the, uh, the global uh, sex trafficking trade. The people who are working the hardest in the world to shut that work down are the people of Jesus in the name of attacking evil for the sake of upholding and defending and protecting the good. So finally, not only is he durable and dominant, he's also different. His methods for achieving durability and dominance are upside down to what we would naturally think. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard. He won't present primarily, especially in his first coming, his first advent, he won't present in a domineering, assertive way as, he, as much as he will present with non-assertive meekness. As the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said, Jesus stoops to conquer. He doesn't just come down on our level. He gets beneath us on his knees, and he washes our feet to show us what greatness looks like, to show us that, that, that the true king is the one who doesn't act like a king. That's who the true ruler is. That's the one you want to follow. That's the one whose leadership and salvation and rescue you need. His strategy for dominance is meekness. He came out of Nazareth, a mostly unknown, small, obscure, irrelevant, considered irrelevant town in his day. He was born to Joseph and Mary, an unwed, engaged couple the angel of the Lord visited Mary. You're going to bear, be the bearer of the Son of God, the Theotokos, as they say in the Greek. And they were young. They were poor. They didn't have networks. They didn't even have an indoor space to give birth to their child. 
The work that he chose was blue-collar work, but it wasn't enough work to be able to afford a roof over his own head. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. His inner circle was primarily fishermen, social outcasts, tax collectors, prostitutes, etc., who had all been reformed and renewed by the kindness and mercy and healing powers of God. His posture is is uh, given to us in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that though being in nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Though being the king, he didn't act like the king, but instead made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. The fabric of the universe is this, in meekness is your strength. So remember, I opened this sermon um, with, um, with the statement, an election victory, when, when, we're idolatry, when we make idolatry out of, out of politics, an election victory feels like a revival. What does true revival look like and feel like? Well, let me tell you about Randy Pope. Randy Pope is... Uh, now Pastor Emeritus at Perimeter Church. It's an affiliated church of ours in, in the metro Atlanta area. And over the years, they've been responsible for um, you know, planting all kinds of new churches all over the metro Atlanta area especially and, and just giving itself away to their community and to the cause of Christ everywhere. And it's just flourishing. Many thousands of people ministered to, come to Christ, baptized at P- Perimeter Church under Randy Pope's faithful leadership over the years. And so there was, a, there was a leaders conference, a pastors conference that was happening at Perimeter where Randy did some pre- presenting. And then the conference was over and, and several of the folks that were there wanted to get some time, grab some time with Randy and look for him. And he'd already jetted out. And, and they're like, oh my gosh, does he not even want to talk to us? Like, like is he just kind of a diva that, that kind of gives his presentation and then leaves? And so, so then they noted, they stuck around and hung out with each other for a little bit. And, you know, Remember, there's always more than what meets the eye um, in, in, you know, in the leader that you think is a diva, right? Because they stuck around, and, and, and Randy Pope comes back. And, and the next thing they know, he's pushing the vacuum in the sanctuary and in the hallways of this enormous church. And, and this, this small group of pastors went to the administrative assistant uh, that, was, that was working at the, at the time and said, what, what, what's going on? You all have a staff of like 150 people, and Randy Pope is vacuuming the building. What's going on? And, and why did he drive away? Do you have any idea why, do you, why he might drive away? And he said, well, he drove away because he didn't want to be noticed for what he's doing right now. And some years ago, he actually came to the leadership of the church, and, and he came to you know, office administration and says, I want at least one task where I'm stooping and nobody notices, where I'm humbling myself and nobody notices. And it's not the vacuuming that, 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 that is, you know, it's like it's as if it's lesser work than, than pastoring because it's not. You know, Luther said, the humblest sweeping maid, sweeping for the, the glory of God, has as much dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. It was the invisibility of the work that, 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 that Randy was after. And so that's why he left and, and, and he came back. That's what revival looks like. It's much more meek and much more quiet most of the time. Revival also looks like invested mothers. Arguably the most important vocation in the world is the invested mother. You know they say, you know, behind every great man 
is a woman rolling her eyes. Okay, so there was a, a journalist that was here in Nashville a few years ago. Some of you were in the room in this conversation. Uh, he was doing, you know, research, going around asking questions uh, for a book that he was writing about what made the most influential people in the history of the world influential. And he said there was one common thread for all of the, of the world changers that, that, that he studied and wrote about, and, and that is that they all had invested mothers. That's what revival looks like. That is what changing the world looks like, stooping to conquer. And now we have in front of us a table set by the greatest man who ever lived, and behind him also was a mother who, upon hearing from the Lord the humility and the sacrifice to which the Lord was calling her, that she would be the bearer of God's Son and be subject to all kinds of suspicion and all kinds of narratives about her that were not true. You know, having to, you know, knowing that she was going to carry a scarlet letter around with her for the rest of her life for sins that she never committed and that Joseph never committed. And yet they bore that shame. They bore that misunderstanding because of what she knew when she said, all generations will call me blessed because I get to be the bearer of, the carrier of, and the mother of the king who is a king for the very reason that he will never act like one. It reminds me of Lucy in, uh, in Lewis's Narnia Chronicles where she said that a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And now is the time for us to ingest that which was in that stable, the body and the blood of Christ. Something bigger than the whole world we get to take into our finite bodies right now. Glory to God. Let's pray.